Kids third grade and under, you can head to Kids Church. I just have to say, I am so impressed. Snow, ice, cold weather, lost an hour of sleep, and you guys still made it. I'm impressed. It was so hard to explain to my kids how it worked, though. They were like, yeah, but if we oversleep, we'll be just fine. I'm like, no, no, it's different this time around. Um, lots of stuff happening this week. Uh, we have elderberries tomorrow. We have uh, Wednesday night Bible study. We have a food truck coming. We've got food giveaway. Next Sunday is our baptism finally happening. Uh, what we were scheduled for January is actually happening now, and that will be after the second service here at... Um, Power outage. <laughs> It'll be after uh, second service um, at uh, Harvest, and so we're going to do a joint baptism with Harvest, and uh, going to have a good time. Uh, make sure, if at all possible, that you're here in person next week, because next week's message is going to need personal interaction. Okay, so whatever schedule, whatever you thing you have going on. You're not going to want to miss next week. Not that this week's message isn't good, it is. But next week, to, to really fully grasp and, and experience what God has for you, it'll, it'll help for you to be in the room. Today's message is from Luke 9. Uh, what it really kind of means to follow Jesus. As you're agreeing to follow Him, what does that look like? You know, we're in this Lenten season, this 40 days prior to... Uh, to um, uh, Easter and, and Holy Week, and, and you know, this Thursday is St. Patrick's Day. Guys, if you know St. Patrick's Day is not about green beer or leprechauns, St. Patrick's Day is about a saint, a person who was taken by as a slave by the Irish, fled, came to Christ, and God called him to go back to the people that had enslaved them and bring them the gospel. And he used a, a, a three-leaf clover to explain to them the Trinity, and, uh, and so St. Patrick's Day is all about the Irish receiving the gospel. And so uh, that's why we celebrate it. Especially uh, early North American culture, so much of the immigrants were Irish and it was very important to them. So we'll be following uh, some of the different moments and events uh, that are in the process of the 40 days between uh, the transfiguration and, and, uh, and, and the Jesus dying and rising again on the cross. Um, so the Lenten season is designed for preparation, and part of that is to consider fasting from things so that you can focus more on Jesus and make Him a greater priority in your life. And so hopefully some of you have chosen to do that, you know, fast from something or, or several things in order to give God more uh, attention or to take a break from other things. For some, it means fasting some meals. I mean, traditionally, uh, most people would fast um, uh, meat, uh, and then they would just eat fish if they wanted a meat source during this time period. But you can fast from other things. You fast from coffee and whatever money Starbucks would give from you, you could give to missions. Um, fast from TV or movies or video games or whatever else. Whatever is a, or tends to be a distraction from you, this is a time to seek, God, seek God's face. And I encourage you um, to do that because what you'll find is not only on Easter weekend will that be more impactful to your heart and life, but in the, the weeks leading up to it, you're going you're gonna to draw closer to Jesus. As you draw closer to Him, um, you'll experience more of Him. Now, I did not mandate that you take a fast intentionally, nor did I tell you what to fast from, because fasting has to be a compulsory decision, a decision of the heart. 
and with anything in life, if your heart is not in the right place and matching your actions, then the outcome will not be beneficial, right? It can sometimes be a more detriment to you if you're forced to do something that you don't really want to do. And, uh, and so I, I'm not about promoting heartless legalism. Am I going to challenge you? Sure. Am I going to set a bar for you? Yes. But it has to be the decision of your heart. And that's the beauty of our faith, is it's not a forced religion. It is a real relationship that depends upon our daily choice as to how close we want to get to Jesus or how far away we want to stay. And so it's all on you. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. And so as we look at that, we're going to jump into Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26, where Jesus talks about what discipleship means. He says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the Holy Angels. Let me just say, Jesus isn't into marketing. He's not a salesman and he's not trying to fool you into following him. That's what I love about our Jesus and about our faith. We don't serve a God who does a bait and switch. He is honest. He is truthful. He is worthy of our praise. And so I know for me, I'm drawn to genuine people. I do not like people who, who say their one thing and they act differently. And I'm so thankful that God is just real and direct with us. What we see is what we get. And so even in this passage, he wants you to know fully that if you choose to follow him, this is what your life will look like. But he also makes a logical argument. What's your other option? <laughs> What's your other option? What other pursuit in life can satisfy like Jesus? What other thing can you experience in life that you're going to take from you? And so as we're talking about discipleship, I want you to put it in the pro proper perspective. This decision is bigger than what car you're going to buy. This decision is bigger than buying a house or a timeshare or what college you're going to go to what career you're going to pursue, even who you're going to marry. It's bigger than having kids and investing in cryptocurrency. It's the biggest decision of your life because it has eternal consequences. And so we put a lot of effort and a lot of focus on all these other decisions of our life. But are we just as thoughtful and intentional and passionate about this decision of whether or not we're going to become a disciple of Jesus. And so we, we, we're going to look at Jesus explaining to us directly, in all of his honesty, what he means by carrying a cross and following him. So a few verses further down, we're going to read six verses today. In Luke chapter 9, we're going to read verses 57 through 62. It says, As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. 
He said to another person, come follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. This passage gives three separate instances where either Jesus was was calling somebody to follow him or someone was saying, I'm willing to follow you. And I think there's three direct truths that we can pull from these six verses. So let's reread verses 57 through 58. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, we're not told who, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. (coughs) If Jesus hears somebody saying, I promise to follow you wherever you go, I think that's a pretty great thing, right? That's what I would want to hear is, yes, wherever you go, I want to come with you. A full commitment, a full desire. That's what Jesus is looking for. And Jesus hears that, and it almost sounds like he's trying to change this guy's mind, right? Like his response is not like, okay, great, come along. He says something very differently. And it's true that that if we're going to follow Jesus, it's a daily thing where you go exactly where he goes, and you don't go where he doesn't go. I mean, if we can summarize our faith into a simple passage or phrase, I think the simplest way of of summarizing our faith is following Jesus. But another way of looking at it a little more deeply is we go where he goes, and we don't go where he doesn't go. Life in in, in faith is all about relationship and companionship with Jesus. We go where he goes. We live like he lives. We avoid where he wouldn't be. That is our faith. And it sounds like here Jesus is just trying to dissuade this person. But I think in reality he's trying to get him to grasp what he's really promising. What, he, what He's saying, are, are you sure? This is what your promise means. Now, let's just look at it from this guy's perspective. Because God has a way of looking into our hearts instead of just hearing the words that we say, right? I'm so thankful that God does not believe me at my words, <laughs> but he knows my heart. And so let's, let's just think. If we're this guy walking during the time of Jesus, and you know your, your, your buddy Greg down the street, who you've known your whole life, is now seeing, and he's been blind his whole life, and you heard about Roger, who could never walk, and now he's walking around and dancing, and he's taking dancing lessons, and, and you hear about Tim, who, who was possessed by a demon, is now delivered. And you heard about Jesus walking on water and calming the storm and feeding 5,000. And there are throngs of people just pursuing Jesus all the time. And you think, yeah, I want to be a part of that, right? Don't we all say that even now? Wouldn't we want to experience Jesus in our life in such a way that we can be a part of that? So this guy saying, hey, I want to go wherever you want to go, that's probably what's going on in his heart and in his mind. But everything we choose has a price. Everything we choose has a price. So I was reading this random article 
this week about Courtney Cox, who said she doesn't have a lot of memories of her time being on the show Friends. But she has one memory that, that sticks out to her, and when they were filming the earliest episodes, the producer gave each of the cast members $500 and sent them to Las Vegas and said, have a great night, spend all the money, don't worry about it, enjoy it, because after tonight, you'll never be able to do this the same way ever again. And so they did. They, they spent their $500, they enjoyed their time in Las Vegas, and, and it was wonderful. And she said, our producer was exactly right. Because when our show became a hit, I couldn't go anywhere or do anything without people wanting to talk with me or get my autograph. She said, everybody connected with me, me with this character that I played on this show, and they desired to be around me. And so we look at the life of a movie star and we think, we want that. We want the fame and the attention and the big parties and the nice clothes and the large houses and the, the fancy cars and the recognition. But all of that comes with another price, a price of privacy and being able to just live your life and freedom. I mean, when I was a kid, who, when they were a kid, didn't want that same thing, right? I want my name in lights. I want to be a big movie star, whatever else. Now that I'm older, I'm like, I just want my space, you know? Thursdays are typically my day off, and so I'll wear my sweatpants and my sweatshirt and my ball cap, and I'll go to Walmart or whatever else, and I always have people coming up to me and go, Pastor Nate, is that you? I didn't recognize you. And I'm like, I know you didn't recognize me, Right? Not that I don't love you guys, but there are moments, right, where we just want to be. But everything we pursue in life has a price. So following Jesus also has a price. God can and will do amazing things in and through your life, but it also means giving up the security of having an established place on this earth. Jesus says, I don't have a place to lay my head. To follow Jesus means that we live for our eternal home that we haven't received yet. Therefore, no home, no place is our goal and something that we can rely on. The beauty of following Jesus is he can uproot us and move us at any time and at any place whenever he wants. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's why he's saying, I don't have a place to lay my head. I don't have a place, a goal on this earth where I'm saying I'm settled and I'm at peace and I'm not going to move from here. That is not what it means to follow Jesus. Now, 10 years ago, this place looked a little different. And some of the people looked a little different. I was newly your pastor. And I remember a couple praying at the altar right here one of the first Sundays I preached. And it was Aaron and Shannon DePew. They had just sold their dream home that they built, and they were living with her family in Terra Alta, and they were about to build their second dream home. She had a great job with a business that she owned with, with Aaron, and, and Aaron was selling medical supplies, and they were living the American dream. But at that Sunday morning, I remember them fully dedicating their life to Jesus in a passionate way, and I watched, and you, many of you were with the journey with us on this, we watched how Aaron lost his job in that position and, and became the, the uh, administrative assistant here at the school and, and worked hand-in-hand -hand with David Friend. And, and so much of what you see uh, in the health in our school is due to, to, to Aaron's time there and Shannon's time on the school board. 
And, and we saw them, um, you know, kind of build this dream home and then just be like, no, that's not what satisfies us. And then the summertime when they would normally go to the beach, they said, let's do a mission trip. And then they ended up in Hungary. And now, 10 years later, they're missionaries in Hungary helping refugees. They could have never guessed 10 years prior that's where they would be. If you would have told them that, they would have laughed at you. But yet, they would tell you. I could call Aaron on the phone right now and put him up to my mouthpiece, and he would tell you, we are happy where we are because Jesus said, this is where I'm going, come with me. And that's what it means to follow Jesus this way. That we don't live for earthly contentment and the American dream anymore. Our dream is an eternal dream and our citizenship is in heaven and there's nothing that we have that God can't take from us for us for Him to give us something better. So Jesus wants you to know that following Him today means not a pursuit of permanence or peace on this earth. Not for worldly glory, but it's an amazing adventure where He leads us day by day. Now, I use the, the DePews as an example because they're part of our church family. Not everybody is called to missionary work. It's a unique calling. But I will tell you that your calling is unique to you. Okay? Whatever he's leading you to will be unique to you. <coughs> I know this because one of the, the most dreaded uh, true narratives in Scripture that always bugged me was the, the story of the rich young ruler, right? That comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit ter- eternal life? And, and Jesus says, go, um, he says, follow, you know, follow all the Ten Commandments. And the guy says, which ones? And he names a few. And the guy says, I've done all that. What else? And Jesus is thinking, liar. But Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell all you have, give to the poor, and then you'll have eternal life. No, he says, then you'll have treasure in heaven. He knows the guy just really wants treasure. And he, and he leaves Jesus despondent because he has so much wealth and he's not willing to part with his wealth to follow Jesus. That's that guy's unique call. That's his tra- change and transition to following Jesus. That's what he has to leave and let go at the foot of the cross so he can carry his cross daily. For us, it's different. Maybe for you that's the same thing, but, but many of us have unique callings, and you, you need to discover as you follow Jesus what yours is. The second truth comes from verses 59 through 60. He said to another person, come follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Now you read this and you think, this is the most insensitive, uncaring thing Jesus has ever said. Doesn't the scripture say you're supposed to honor your father and your mother? It seems like Jesus is advocating the opposite. So let's kind of break this passage down, right? Let's, let's go, go a little deeper. Let me just start by saying any response we give to God that starts with first or but is our problem. When God says something, we can't say, well, first I'd like to, or I will, but it doesn't work that way. God is not a negotiator, okay? What he says, what his plan is, is perfect. And he's not trying to wheel you and deal you. Like I said, he's not a salesman. 
He's just giving you direct truth, and your response needs to be either yes or no. Now, culturally, this request to bury his father may not mean that his father is actually dead or on his deathbed. It may literally mean, when my father is dead, I will follow you. What he's saying is, until my dad's dead, he's my priority. There's other examples of Scripture where it's used in this context. One being when Jacob steals his brother's uh, blessing, uh, Esau, and Esau is so mad at Jacob that he wants to kill him. He says, I will exact my revenge when I've buried my father. Now, the blessing comes about from Isaac giving it, meaning to give it to Esau, but gives it to Jacob because his eyesight's failing and he knows he's in his last days. But the scripture tells us Isaac lived like another 20 years. I mean, the dude would not die. So what it's saying is, is that same kind of concept. I'm going to do this action once this person is out of my life. So what this man is really saying to Jesus is, I'll follow you after I accomplish what I want to accomplish. I'm going to do things on my timing. Have you said that to Jesus? Yeah, Jesus, I know you're calling me to a deeper love relationship with you, and I know that you have some great plans for my life, but I'd like to do this first. I'd like to experience this first. I, this is a bigger priority to me. Let's not lie here in the room. We've all done that. We've all said that. I'll get sold out when. And some people take that all the way to their deathbed, you know? I know Jesus is the way, but I'm enjoying life so much, I'll just say the prayer before I die. That's not what God wants from us. Jesus said later in Luke 14, 26, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, your wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. That sounds familiar, right? Carry your own cross. It seems to be repeated multiple times. I think Jesus is really trying to emphasize that that's what it means to be a disciple. This also may seem insensitive too, right? Like, he calls us to hate our mom and dad. No, in comparison to our love for God, the love that we have for our closest and most familial relationships looks more like hate than love. That's what he's saying. In comparison, I want you to love me so much. I want you to be so devoted to me that whatever loves you have in comparison look more like hate. That's the comparison being made here. Because God talks about us loving all the time. At the Last Supper, he told his disciples, the world will know that you belong to me by how you love one another. And then in Ephesians 5, Jesus says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. So that's the comparison. It's actually deep love for him. Deep love for everyone, but our love for him must come first and completely. And so our focus is always on eternity. You know, people still have a choice. Those who are dead do not. I've done a lot of funerals as a pastor. Do you know what I don't do at funerals? I don't talk to the person in the casket. Why? Because they're dead. Their decision has been made. Their choices have been done. When I do funerals, I talk to the people in the room so that we can look by the example of the one that we're mourning 
whether good or bad, and say, you have a decision to make yourself. The beauty of our faith is we daily have choices we can make. And so there's this urgent <coughs> urgency of the call to follow Christ. Because there are still people who are alive who haven't made a choice. And so in that sense, everything is subservient to our pursuit of Jesus and his mission to spread his loving truth with a lost and dying world who may or may not be related to us. So when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead and come and follow me, he's not showing a lack of love for this person's parents. What he's in reality doing is he's expanding that love. He says, yes, it's natural to love your father and your mother and other people in your life, but I want you to love the world with that same passion. There are those that are lost and dying that still have a choice and they need to hear from me. It's, it's an expansion. So it sounds like Jesus is being insensitive when the exact opposite is true. He's passionately in love with every person made in his image and he's sending us out. The third and final truth comes from verses 61 and 62. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first, there's that but first again, right? Let me say goodbye to my family. Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Sounds insensitive, right? Jesus is being unreasonable. But doesn't that emphasize the importance of the call where Jesus says, no, you don't have to say goodbye. Let's imagine today that our town is about to be flooded. There's a flood rampaging, coming right our direction, and you know about it, and it's your job to radio it in to the rest of the town, and you hear the news and you say, okay, I'll do it. Let me finish my supper first. What? There's an urgency to what God is putting on us. And like the previous passage, there's a but and a first. It's fine. I, this is so random. I probably shouldn't even share it, but I got to break this up. We went to a preaching school one time, a bunch of pastors in the denomination, and so we had to write a sermon from, a, from the same passage. And uh, it was a passage where, thank you, Hannah. You're there was a problem where there... Um, in the passage, there was a lot of butts in the passage, and one of the, the pastor's title for his sermon was The Problem with Having Big Butts. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I've never entitled a sermon that for that very reason. Um, but there's a danger, right? That's what Jesus is telling this man. You've heard the call. If you go back, you may not come back. You may not follow me. You know, we read about Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt in the book of Genesis when Sodom and Gomorrah is being destroyed. And, and as a kid, man, that just exploded my mind. I was, how did that happen? You know, she looked back and, and I, that freaked me out. Like, if, if I look the wrong direction, is that going to happen to me? But what the passage is truly saying is not only did Lot's wife look back toward the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, her heart desired it and she headed back. And we know uh, through the destruction of Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii that that literally can happen to the human body. 
that as a volcano explodes, that there's liquid concrete in the air that, that can come into our lungs and solidify us and make a stone. And so you can see uh, in Pompeii those, those human bodies that are encapsulated in, in stone. Um, uh, but that's the very thing that we're talking about here is, is uh, Jesus' response is anyone who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, uh, he uses farming illustrations so much. This is another one. Now, I, I'm not a farmer. My wife keeps trying to get me to be a farmer, but I'm not a farmer. And, and I don't have oxen, and I don't have a, a wooden plow or, or a metal plow. I have a gas-powered tiller, okay? And I've got my thing going here, right? And, and the thing about the tiller that I know is, if I'm not looking ahead of me, and I'm kind of doing this thing the whole time, I'm not going to make straight lines, and I'm going to till something I'm not supposed to. It's a simple truth. So what's intended for good can end up in destruction if I'm not focused on what I'm doing. But I also believe that given the context, Jesus uses this illustration intentionally. Don't forget that earlier in Luke chapter 9, Jesus and three of his disciples witnessed something amazing on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Jesus is seen in all his glory, and Elijah and Moses show up and they have this conversation. Well, if you look at Elijah's life, Back in 1 Kings 19, we have a record of God telling Elijah to call Elisha, and then we have the moment of that calling. Let me read verse 16 to you. This is the calling when God says to call um, Elisha. He says, Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Ebal-Moah, to replace you as my prophet. Then jumping down a few verses, 19 through 21, so Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him, threw his cloak across his shoulders, and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, First, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back. But think about what I've done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Now, the first time I ever made application of this passage was when my brother was here uh, doing a, a revival series, uh, and he had a sermon entitled, Burn the Plow. But when you hear of this situation with Elijah and Elisha, doesn't it seem like just the same conversation that Jesus is having with this man? He calls him to follow him, but he says, first, let me say goodbye to my family. Elisha says the same thing to Elijah. First, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye. And, and, and much like uh, what Elijah does for Elisha, he says, think about what I'm saying here. Think about what I just did for you. That, that putting on the mantle was saying, I'm choosing you to follow in my ministry. And so Elisha's danger is the same danger that any of us would face. And if we look at the context, I mean, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a farmer, but culturally, I think having 12 teams of oxen, he's probably a fairly wealthy guy. He's probably got a huge farm in comparison to some other people. 
And so, yes, he goes home and he kisses his mother and father goodbye, but then he kills all the oxen, all 24 of them, tears up the plows, builds a bonfire, cooks the oxen on the bonfire, and then feeds the community and leaves and follows Elijah. What is he doing? He's saying, I'm never coming back here. There's no old life to go to. I'm burning it up. There is no plan B. Now, if you go back to say goodbye to your family to do that, that's okay. To burn those bridges. It's the same context as Peter. Remember, three times he leaves Jesus. Goes back to fishing. The third time is after Jesus has risen from the dead. He decides to go fishing in Galilee. Brings some of the disciples with him. They can't catch anything all night. They hear some guy on the shore say, Hey, try once more. Throw it over here. He's like, He does it pulls up so many fish that the nets are breaking, and John says, it's the master. And you know what Peter does? He puts on his clothes and jumps in the water. Who here likes to put on more clothing when they go swimming? Makes no sense. Why does he put on more clothes? Because he's never getting back in the boat. It's the same reason why the conquistadors would burn their ships when they landed at the new land where they could go at, so they had no option of leaving. That is what we're to do with Jesus. No plan B. No option of breakup. No option of separation. When you make a decision for Jesus, you need to be all in and focused ahead, forgetting what is behind Not just the good things, but also the bad things. I'm on a new journey. I'm a new person. I'm chosen by God, and He is my all and my everything. I'd like to end the message with a true story. Many of you have heard it before. Uh, I'm going to share it because I love it. But I shared it with the middle schoolers recently. In 1904, William Borden graduated from high school. He's the, he's the, he was the heir of the Borden Dairy Company, okay? So Borden's still around. But as a high school graduation present, his family sent him on a worldwide tour. Anybody get that as their high school graduation present? It's pretty awesome, right? Just to tour the world. And as he's touring the world, his heart breaks for people that don't have the gospel, and he chooses to become a missionary, One friend expressing disbelief at Bill said, you were going to throw your life away becoming a missionary. And so a story often associated with William Borden says that in response, he wrote in his Bible two words, no reserves, no reserves. The next year he started at Yale University. He stood out not because of his great wealth, but because of his character and his spiritual maturity. One of his former classmates wrote, He came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock. Just because of this, settled purpose and consecration. During those college years, William also wrote in his journal, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Wow. What a mature college student, right? While at Yale, he saw the spiritual need on campus and a spiritual need in his own life, and he gathered two other students, and they started to gather for prayer and Bible study. 
And they continued to do so. And this passion and further for Jesus started to spread across Yale's campus. And by the time he graduated, out of the 1,300 students, a thousand of them were involved in prayer and Bible study that started with William Borden. Not only did he care for and minister to his fellow students, he also went to the drunk and destitute in his community. It says he stepped out of his ivory palace into the slums and started the Yale Hope Mission. While at Yale, his, his call to missionary, uh, uh, to missionary work was, was single-focused. It was refined, and God narrowed it down to the Muslim Kansu people of China. And so as he develops this passion for international missions, it's contagious. And other students are being called to the mission field as well. After graduating, uh, he was offered several well-paying jobs that would help him to accumulate his own wealth all the more, and he turned it all down, writing in his Bible two more words, no retreats. After Yale, he did his graduate work at Princeton, and then finally became a missionary, but before heading to China, he decided to go to Egypt and learn Arabic. He was in Egypt one month and contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. His life, it would seem, was a waste to have died so young and not completed all his plans. But consider the impact of his short life. How many people during his time period and since, have heard the testimony of William Borden and have decided to become missionaries themselves. It was discovered in his Bible after his death that under the words, no reserves and no retreats, was written two final words, no regrets. Is that not what Jesus is spelling out to us in this passage? The value of your life is not measured on how long or short you live, nor your wealth, nor who remembers you or your accomplishments. Doesn't your life have worth and value when you are fully dedicated to Jesus and just walking with Him daily? And He has priority over everything else in your life. Now this might seem like an extreme dedication, right? Yeah, Jesus, that's great, but... I'm not sure I want to commit to that. Well, let's, let's look at the world. There are always the best of the best in every sphere, whether it's business or academics or athletics. And whoever's the best of the best always dedicates their time, their money, their effort, their mental focus, everything to that task and chore. I don't know of anybody who's the best in their field that hasn't fully dedicated their life to it. And so yes, the difference with us and our faith is that God doesn't pick and choose, oh, I'm going to take two, maybe, maybe one person out of this congregation that's going to be mine. No, He doesn't do that. He calls all of us, every single person in this room, to that kind of loving, fully dedicated relationship, and it's up to us as to what we're going to do. Yeah, but that's a lot of dedication. Any less dedication than Jesus has already shown to you? What did Jesus give up for you to be in relationship with Him? His glory? Confined to a human body? Being willed, willed to, to be mocked and, and slandered and, and slain on a cross? What did He not endure for His dedication to you? The kind of love 
is transformational. So here's what I'll tell you. Is it easy? No. Is it good? Yes. And when you choose to follow Jesus in such a way, you understand his love all the more because you start loving him that way and you start loving others that way and what seemed like impossible becomes a loving, passionate pursuit. It's like amazing. And, and so I don't want any of us anymore to settle for mediocrity. Not in any sphere of our life. I don't want you to settle for mediocre, mediocre marriages, mediocre parenting, mediocre, mediocre work. I want you to, to pursue the best things in life with a full passion and Jesus at the helm. It's worth it. It's worth it. And so Jesus I love, lovingly says, listen, I want you to have this kind of dedication with me, but I'm not going to sell you a bill of goods. This is what it's going to take, but it's worth it. So, as you hear the voice of Jesus today, and he is saying this, follow me. Are you saying, but? First? Are you saying no? Or are you saying yes? Followed by no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. What are your excuses? They're unique to you. All of us are different. Jesus, I thank you and praise you for the power of your word. I thank you for your loving desire for us. I thank you, God, that no matter how many times we've told you no, you don't stop pursuing us. I thank you, Lord, for the example of the disciples who were a bunch of misfits and uh, people that nobody else would have chosen. Because that gives me hope, Lord. <laughs> thank you for Peter. He's such a knucklehead. He's, he's me. Our desire, Lord God, is for you. Let that increase and grow. Help us to come to you with our eyes wide open. I thank you, God, that when we choose to follow you, that we don't carry our cross by ourselves solo. We pick up the cross that you're already carrying and we share it with you. And you've given us a new family in Christ to where we lock arms and carry the cross together. So Lord, let us receive this message today as you're doing this refining work in our heart to go deeper with you, to see it as relational. Help us to stop comparing ourselves to other believers and for settling. When we look around us and we see so many other believers settling for less than this full call of discipleship, it can be comfortable to say, yeah, I'm just going to be part of the crowd. And yet your voice still persists and calling us by name and saying, will you follow me? So in this moment, Lord, in this time of reflection, reveal to us the true call of our hearts where we are wanting to put other things first or adding a but or really just telling you no. And let us surrender it all to you. In your name we pray. Amen. As the lights dim down.